0: 2 Kings chapter 18. When we get to chapter 18, the northern kingdom is now gone, and so the rest of 2 Kings focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah. And at the beginning of the chapter, in the first eight verses, we were introduced to their new king, Hezekiah, last week. He decides to walk with the Lord. He becomes the most faithful king that Judah has had since David. And while God prospers Hezekiah for his faithfulness, that does not mean that Hezekiah's reign will be problem-free. The Assyrians are still a massive empire, and they do not take kindly to his refusal to pay tribute. And so, when things go south, the king of Assyria sends a delegation that contains a spokesperson who sounds way too familiar, similar to how the devil talks to us, to be a coincidence. So tonight we're going to look at dealing with the accuser. So chapter 18 of Second Kings, we begin in verse 9. After telling us what Hezekiah did, how he was faithful, and then how he rebelled against Syria, he defeated the Philistines, it says, and it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, and he besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. They captured it. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshia, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. It was captured. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Halah and Habor by the river Gozon in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but they transgressed His covenant and all that Moses, a servant of the Lord, commanded and would not hear them nor do them. So... When we look at this here, we are given a reminder. The author reminds us again of why God judged the northern kingdom. The author rehashes stuff that we've already covered in previous chapters, so why do that? Well, remember, we can't forget that this is not just a historical account. The author has a purpose, covenants and character. He's explaining how God was faithful to his promises, his character never changed, and Israel and Judah both were were sometimes faithful. Israel was never faithful, and their character wavered, and in the case of the northern kingdom, God judged them. The purpose that he gives is in verse 12, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. Hezekiah obeyed, and God was with them. We learned that last week. But Israel disobeyed, and God judged them. But it wasn't just that they disobeyed, it says that they transgressed his covenant. The word transgress means to cross over a line. You know, we blow it, we fail, we sin, you know, we wake up and we're like, Lord, I give you everything today, and then somebody cuts us off on the way to work, and then the boss sends us an email that's not exactly polite, and then a coworker snaps at us, and when we get home, we are in the flesh and we blow it, right? Like we didn't wake up that day going, I'm gonna be mean to my family but we go through things and we don't deal with them correctly and we fail, right? That's not what the word transgression means. Transgression means you woke up and you decided to do violence that day. You woke up and you said, there's a boundary. I don't care. I'm crossing it. So that's what they did. It's not that they struggled with sin, or that they failed sometimes. The northern kingdom willfully crossed over God's boundaries. They refused to listen to His words, the writer says. They did not listen. You know, they would not hear, and they would not do them. Now, this is the option the exiles of Judah had chosen up to the point that the people he's writing to… Remember, all this is history already… He's writing to captives, exiles in Babylon. And that was the choice they made, the choice that Israel made. That's the choice they made too up to this point. But the reason he rehashes this and gives us information we've already know about is because they can choose another option. The one Hezekiah took. Now, things don't go smoothly for Hezekiah right away. In fact, things are very rough for Hezekiah at first, and Hezekiah actually wavers a bit in the beginning of his reign. Verse 13. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, it says, did Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them, captured them? And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which you put on me, I will bear. And so the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. So, it's time to deal with your decision that you decided to rebel against Assyria, right? We're not paying tribute anymore, Assyria. We're not your vassal anymore. We're independent. Assyria says, okay. As soon as I'm done with the northern kingdom, I'll come come into your doorstep. And so in the 14th year of his reign, it takes a while, but eventually Assyria invades. Now what's interesting is the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, as verse 13 mentions, the Bible also tells us in another place that Hezekiah became extremely sick in this year of his reign. In fact, the Lord sends Isaiah the prophet at the end of that year. So most people think it occurred after these events. But he sent the Lord, the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to him at the end of his reign to tell him to get his house in order because he's going to die from this illness. So, this is a rough year for Hezekiah. Get invaded, you know, we're going to see a little bit later, get insulted, threatened, and he gets a sickness that a prophet of God comes to say, you're going to die from this. For 14 years, the Assyrians let him get away with rebellion, but either when Hezekiah is sick or maybe he's sick later in the year, I don't know. Whatever the situation, they decide to invade. Now, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, Sennacherib's real goal was Egypt. But to get to Egypt, coming from Assyria, you've got to go through Judah. So after he comes to a bunch of cities, Judean cities, captures a bunch of them, it says he lays siege to the city of Lachish. Now, Lachish was a massive city at this point in Judah's history. It had the largest city gates in the kingdom. They measured 80 feet by 80 feet. So if you're trying to imagine the city gates of Lachish, that's a quarter of the Statue of Liberty tall and 10 tennis courts wide. I mean, this is a massive city. Lachish is way to the south of Jerusalem, just a seven-hour march from the borders of Egypt, showing that that's where Sennacherib was clearly heading. But Hezekiah panics, and so he sends an apology for rebelling against him. He says here in verse 10 that Hezekiah the king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish saying, I have offended. The word that means I have sinned, I've done wrong, I made a mistake. Return for me. It means halt the invasion, go back home. We will pay whatever tribute you deem to be right for our crime. And So, it tells us that the king of Assyria said, okay. He appointed him 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's the equivalent of half a million dollars in modern-day money. Now, that may not seem like much for the United States of America, but this would be a huge sum back then for a small nation like Judah. And like his father before him, Hezekiah resorts to robbing the Lord's temple to pay it off. It says he gave all the silver that was in, found in the house of the Lord, also in the treasuries of the king's house, so he, it's not like he didn't use his own funds. But he also, he took the, stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the, the pillars there that he had overlaid. While the author of Kings doesn't go into Hezekiah's work on rebutifying and restoring the temple after his dad had stripped it bare. The author of Chronicle tells us that he removed the pagan altar that his dad Ahaz had set up. He restored the true altar, he reopened the temple for seeking the Lord, and he rebutified the temple buildings and the furniture. But now he he starts to basically undo all that work. Um, this was a failure on Hezekiah's part. And it doesn't actually fix his problem. Look at verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent three guys, Tartan, Rabseres, and Rabshekah, from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up, and they came to Jerusalem, and when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field." So Sennacherib says, fine, I accept your apology. Here's your new tribute, which is probably much more expensive than it was before. Pay that and we're good. Hezekiah pays it and Sennacherib goes, that's nice, wonderful. You three go take a huge army and lay siege to Jerusalem and give them my terms. Terms? You already had terms. No, I'm changing the deal. That's why you don't make deals with liars. Do whatever you want with that. Sarnacharab takes the money, but he decides to hold off on in the invasion of Egypt because he feels like he can crush Judah once and for all now. And he sends three officers with a massive army to call for Judah, uh, Jerusalem's surrender. Tartan, uh, this is the Assyrian title for the supreme commander of the army. So, I mean, this is his top general. So, his best generals there. Rabsteris, it just means chief officer. We don't know anything else about this guy. And then a lovely person named Rab Sheka this is a field commander, but we're going to see his primary role is to be the king's spokesperson. Now, this army, it says they come up against Jerusalem, they surround it, and it says they stand, they camp, pitch their camp by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, the conduit here refers to the aqueduct or the channel of water that supplied water to the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah had diverted water from the Gihon spring on the western side of Jerusalem through a tunnel so that the Assyrians couldn't keep water from the city in a siege. If you ever go to Jerusalem with us, you can walk through that tunnel. It's quite the engineering marvel from what they had as tools back then compared to what we have today. So, the Assyrian army sets up camp in that dried-up conduit because they were going to come and cut off the water supply but when they see the water's already been dealt with, they're like, okay, fine, we'll just send our delegation to the city. So verse 18, and when they had called the king, there came to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So I don't know why Hezekiah doesn't come out. Perhaps he was too sick, or perhaps he he was matching delegation with delegation. Uh, Perhaps these men were just more qualified to negotiate than he was. But he sends these three guys out to meet the three guys that Sennacherib sends. So you have Eliakim, this guy's the royal steward, we've met him earlier, so I'm not going to go back into him. We have Shebna, he's the military secretary in charge of official documents. And then Joah, who's the royal historian or record keeper. So these guys are coming for what they believe is a true renegotiation, basically, okay, we're going to set down the terms of the new vassalage, you know, we've pledged, re-pledged our loyalty to you, you've accepted our, our pledge of loyalty, so we're just here to bang out the details of the legalities of this and everything it turns out to be something else. Because in verse 19, it says that Rabshakeh says unto them, Speak you now to Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein you trust? You say, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Wait a second, why are you bringing this up? He already apologized. He said he made a mistake. So they find out very quickly that this is not a negotiation in the way that they think it is but rather this guy rab he challenges hezekiah's reasons for rebelling he says first off what is this that you trusted in your your own ability to do this so we're there what what confidence is this confidence means trust or believe in something that gives hope the, the rab sheka here is like what on earth could have caused you to make this decision to rebel what in the world could have given you hope against us And then he lists five things that he believes Hezekiah foolishly placed his hope in. He accuses him of vain words. He says, you've been proclaiming, you've been saying, I have counsel and strength for the war. The word counsel means I've got a good plan. Strength means power to be victorious over another in battle. He says, you've been telling your people that you've got a good plan and your your army could take us. But those are vain words. In other words, speech that cannot back up its claims with action. Basically, Rabsheka says, Really, did you, did you actually think your army could take on my king and his armies? Now, on whom do you trust that you rebel against me? You see, when you sent that messenger to Lachish, to my master, <laughs> that proved you didn't really think you had enough firepower to beat me, that you were just speaking empty words. So who was the extra heavy that you were counting on to give you the edge? Verse 21, he makes his second challenge. You trusted in your army? That was a bad idea. Number two, you trusted in Egypt? That was another bad idea. Verse 21, now you behold, you trust upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. He says, now behold, which basically means, what other edge heavy were you leaning on, to, you know, to give you the edge? Uh, don't, don't tell me. I already know. You were trusting in Egypt. Egypt's just a, a staff of a bruised reed. You know, they're not, you know, think of a staff as something you can hold to kind of lean on. He goes, is there a, a smashed or a broken or a splintered reed? Egypt was known for these reeds, these hollow-tubed water plants that lined the Nile River all, all from north to south. I mean, if you've ever seen those things, they blow in the wind, right? I mean, it's not something you normally think, hey, you know, I'm a little tired. Let me lean on this. You would not normally think that that would be a good idea. Certainly not safe to lean on. And yet, how much worse would it be if the reed was already smashed or splintered? He says, the only thing that will happen if you lean on that is it's going gonna, gonna to poke your hand, He says, people who trust in Pharaoh end up disappointed and in pain. Now, the accusation, the challenge is true. Judah had a pro-Egypt faction, and they had lobbied to Hezekiah to enter into an alliance with Egypt to fight against Assyria. But the prophet Isaiah had preached against this. In Isaiah chapter 31, he came to Hezekiah, and he told him, he said, this is a bad idea. He said, God's judgment is upon Egypt. It's not going to work in uh, Isaiah 31. He says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, that stay on horses, that are going to trust in horses and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they're very strong, but they don't look unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet He is also wise and will bring evil and will not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men. They're not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Spirit. God, he's not a man. He's the Lord, and he's got angel armies at his disposal. Why do you need any help from Egypt? When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helps shall fail, and he that has helped shall fall down, and they shall all fail together. So Isaiah had warned the king, don't trust in Egypt. But Hezekiah had, while he was a godly king, he had listened to this group, their advice, instead of the Lord in this area. And so Reb Shekha says, Egypt failed to produce the promised help. Now you're all alone. And that's what had happened. When you look at the different historians and they talk about this invasion that Assyria made, Egypt didn't help anybody in the Middle East. They basically washed their hands and said, We can't do anything. So that's probably why Hezekiah panicked when some of his cities started falling and he said, Hey, Egypt, come help. You said you'd help. And they said, eh, We're not coming. And so he starts seeing his cities fall one by one, and now his, one of his biggest cities is laid siege to, and he panics, and he tries to renegotiate the deal. But in Sennacherib's mind, Hezekiah was done. He wasn't going to make any deal with Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah's trust in Egypt became a, a painful thing. Now, you might be saying, well, Will, I thought you said that you're going to tell us how to deal with the accuser of our souls. This guy sounds like he's making some pretty good accusations. Well, do you think the enemy is any different? In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us he brings up our failures to the Lord, but Zechariah 3.1 says he also brings our failures up to us. He brings our failures up to us. And you know if there's anything that the enemy forces are very good at, it's at pointing out your failures. They're really good at that. Think about it. Being full of wickedness, they easily recognize things like lapses in faith, self-will, and disobedience. Like they know what that's all about. That's how they live. So they understand all that. They recognize it very easily. And they are eager to condemn us with the facts of our sin or when we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting the Lord. And when they bring this condemnation, it often results in that kind of hazy feeling that something is more wrong with me than everyone else out there. Like someone tells you, say, well, other people fail too. Sometimes people don't trust the Lord like they should. Or some other people sin too. Yeah, but not, not like me. And, and it's weird because it's not an intellectual thing. It's like a feeling. It's an overwhelming feeling. And, and again, it's kind of hazy because it's not based on facts. I remember there was one time I was so discouraged about something. I was so down. And a good brother of mine, he said, well, well, why do you feel this way? And I said, well, this, this, and this, and this. And he's like, okay, well, that doesn't seem like a good enough reason to be all down about it. And I said, but, you know, this, this, and this, and this. And he's like, yeah, I know. You already told me. And, and I said, yeah, but I just, I mean, nobody else fails like that. And he's like, that's irrational, Will. And he goes, there's something I've carried with me since he said these words. He said, when when you're feeling irrational, he said, you might want to check and see if the enemy is attacking you, instead of just kind of giving in to all those powerful emotions. This condemnation that brings this feeling that something's more wrong with you than with anyone else… It also whispers to you that God can't love someone like you. God can't rescue someone like you or can't rescue you from this specific sin or this specific failure. And that condemnation leaves us hopeless, and it keeps us from coming to the Lord in repentance and forgiveness for forgiveness. And that's exactly what the enemy forces want. They want to put enough facts into that lie that it makes the lie more convincing. You know, if the enemy showed up to you and he said, you know, with, a, with a, you know, a big, huge cigarette in his mouth, you know, and he was, you know, all dressed in rags or whatever, and he's like, yeah, Jesus couldn't love somebody like you. Be like, dude, you, why, go away. But he doesn't come like that. You know, he comes alongside, and he's like, not doing so well, are you? No, no, I'm not. You blew it pretty bad this time, didn't you? I did. And he feeds into the things that we're already kind of meditating on in our own minds, But then he takes those facts and he goes that next step into an area that is not true. And he starts to say, well, God doesn't, I mean, I know God said this, but it doesn't really apply to you. This trust in his own power, this trust in Egypt, was indeed a failure for Hezekiah. But it wasn't a failure that couldn't be fixed. All Hezekiah needed to do was what the Bible says, confess his failure to the Lord and repent. But Rabshakeh, like our accuser, throws that foolish decision to trust in Egypt in Hezekiah's face. He really thought that would work? You're not fit to lead this people. But maybe maybe you're not willing to admit to that blunder. Fine, you had another failure of misplaced trust. Verse twenty-two, he gives his third challenge. He says, "But if you say unto me, well, that, if that's not enough to convince you, you're not a good ruler. Well, then if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that He whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now here you can see he's not just addressing Hezekiah. Who's he addressing? All the people who are listening, anybody who's on that wall, anybody who's in the hearing of his voice. And He says, Well, maybe you guys will say to me, Well, our king's not that bad. We, you know, we we trust in the Lord our God. We're, Hezekiah is not perfect. Well, isn't that the one, that he, that Hezekiah took away his high places and his altars and said you can only worship before this altar in the temple in Jerusalem? <laughs> If you say our real confidence is in our God, not Egypt, and not even our king, it's in the Lord. Well, Reb Shekha reveals here that his true purpose is not negotiation. It's not even to address Hezekiah. He's addressing the people who he knows could hear his voice, because his real purpose is to bring confusion and doubt to the people of Jerusalem. Our enemy here, just like Reb Sheka, he moves from facts, in this case, Judah's alliance with Egypt, to reimagined facts. That's how the enemy works. He moves from facts to now reimagined facts. Why would the Lord help you after your king tore down all of his worship sites? But is that what Hezekiah did? I mean, read about it in the first eight verses. Is that what Hezekiah did? No. No. (laughs) Hezekiah removed the worship sites that violated God's commands and restored biblical worship to Judah. The Lord was very pleased with that. The Lord wasn't against Hezekiah for that. But hasn't the enemy twisted the truth to you as well? Kind of like that. You take that big step of trusting the Lord. You obey God. And then the enemy says, oh, you've really blown it now. Look at what you've done. Bad things are going to happen. This wasn't the Lord telling you to do that. Now he's going to abandon you. There'll be no recovery from this. You're done for. Anybody else ever experienced that? You know, they call it like buyer's remorse. I remember when we were at the other church, and it was our first time we were going we to sign an agreement to meet in a, in a, in a, in a nice, bigger place. So we, our first meeting place was our home, and then we outgrew our home because it's hard to fit 18 people into a thousand square foot home. And we started meeting at a, a garden club in Sanford, and, and that was big, but, but it had problems because, well, it had problems. When, when, you know, there's a wedding going on that night, because it was one of the larger facilities in Sanford for special events, and they would have weddings there all the time, you know, bachelor parties, things like that, and, and, and so the kids were doing, you know, children's ministry, and they did children's ministry in the area right by the kitchen, and all of a sudden, this guy starts wheeling in just cartloads and cartloads of Bud Light and other beers and other things like that while the kids are in Sunday school, and, and you know <laughs> like you, you can't bring that in here. It's like, I have to bring it in here. I'm delivering for this whatever tonight. I'm just a delivery person. I'm like, you can't bring that here, you know? So, you know, there were problems. <clears throat> we, had, uh, we had a group of uh, Hindus that would meet um, on uh, Saturday night before we would, we would gather on Sunday morning. And they were hateful towards us. So they would rip down all our signs and they would leave. I, have ne- I couldn't imagine that many people smoking as much as they did but they would leave just cigarette buds everywhere in front of the entrance. And, uh, and so we'd come, we'd find our, our signs were in the ditches on 1792, and we'd have to go put them back up and stuff. And so there were challenges there. So the first time, you know, for a while, we started looking. We said, we're going to, you know, meet in a place that's more reliable. We're going to do a school. And it was so exciting because we found this school, we found this assistant principal we were working with, and it was wonderful. But the contract we signed was for a monthly you know, cost that we had never had, our offerings had never been that high. But we prayed about it, and we, and we, we trusted the Lord. He said, Lord, we're call, we're call, you're calling us to take a step of faith to do this. And so I remember I was there with one of our board members, and we walk in, we sign the paperwork, and it's all done, and we get in the car, and I'm sweating. I am sweating. I'm going, what have we just done? Like, look, we've, we've never we've never taken this much money, and we're, we're, we're going under. It's over, it's done. This was the dumbest decision ever. We should just deal with the Hindus, you know? and the beer. We had the the lady who would clean it the night before, and she wouldn't let us do it. She would go in, and you'd see her in the morning sometimes, and she would use the toilet to clean the mop. But I'm not thinking about any of that when I'm in that car. All I'm thinking about is, this is it, this is it, I'm going under it, And our board member, he, he looks at me and goes, You doing okay? I said, No. I'm, he goes, You having buyer's remorse? I said, Yeah. He goes, Well, let me encourage you. You've already signed the lease. And <laughs> I was like, That's not encouraging. He goes, No, it is, because now it's up to the Lord. We're either going under or we're going to watch him move. We met there for three years, never had any problems. Lord always provided. No, we met there for seven years. Seven years. Lord always provided. So, anyway, silly story, but you get the point. You've probably had situations like that before, and the enemy comes, and he goes, you've blown it. And you know, the truth is, there were many in Judah who resented Hezekiah for removing those worship sites. Why can't we worship God how we want to? Why do we got to travel all the way to, to the temple of Jerusalem to bring our sacrifices? Hezekiah is too radical of a king. So Rabshakeh's words here, they're designed to, to kind of generate more of that, you know, to, to generate a movement who's willing to turn Hezekiah over to the Assyrians and end this conflict without too much bloodshed. In other words, to not trust in the Lord to take care of them. Rabshakeh says, what good does it do to trust in a God you've offended? He's not going to help your king. So since you can't count on Egypt for, the, for help, Can't count on yourselves for help. Can't count on the Lord for help. I'll offer you some help. Verse 23. Now, therefore, I pray you, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver you 2,000 horses if you be able to, on your part, to set riders upon them. How then will you turn away the face of one captain, the least of my master's servants, and put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horses? When he says, now, therefore, I pray you, it means, please, let me help you out of this mess you've created let's make a bargain. That's what it means, you know, give pledges to my lord, the king. Let's make a bargain, okay? You buy horses from me since you were… That, now we find out what the deal was with Egypt. Egypt was going to supply chariots and horses to give them superior firepower. He goes, I'll give you how many horses? What does he say? 2,000, I think it was? 2,000 horses, if you can find that many people who can ride them he says, even if I give you 2,000 horses, how will you even turn away one of the least of my captains in battle? That you put your trust. So the fourth thing he challenges is you put your trust in chariots and horses. Now God had commanded Israel in the law that Moses gave that they were never to have a big cavalry and they were never to use chariots. They were supposed to trust him in battle. Not superior technology. You have that psalm, of course, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God, right? That was Israel's mentality they were supposed to have. And even though some kings disobeyed those commands from God, even though they had, like Solomon had a large cavalry, he disobeyed the Lord, one of the many ways he did. But even though they had kings who disobeyed and they multiplied their cavalry, Judah was never known for having elite chariot soldiers. They were never known for that. And the Assyrians had intel on that. And so Rebsheka uses it to twist the knife further. Why on earth did you think getting chariots and horses from Egypt would give you the edge? If I gave you horses and chariots, you'd still lose. The offer, of course, is sarcastic. He, he's not offering them 2,000 horses. It's meant to demoralize the people. And yet he still has more ammo. Verse 25 he challenges Hezekiah's trust in the Lord's plan for Judah. He says, and now I come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it. He says, is that the case? Am I now come up without the Lord? Oh, no, no. The reason I'm here is because the Lord told me, to, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Huh. You think it's bad that you've offended your God? Well, guess what? It gets worse. Your God told me to attack your land and destroy it. That's why I'm here. Now, as silly as his claim might be, based on the facts of how the war is going so far, it would seem like he's speaking truthfully. We, but they've been, Judas lost every battle up to this point, lost every city. But it is a lie, because God did not send him to do it. But it was a half-truth. You see, prophets like Micah and Isaiah had predicted Isaiah would invade. I'm sorry, Assyria would invade. They had had predicted that Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom, but they also predicted that the Lord would rescue Judah and turn back the Assyrian army. So, it's a half-truth. Did the Lord send Assyria into the promised land? Yes, but not to destroy Judah. Has the enemy ever reminded you of Scripture to condemn you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's always a fun time, you know? You're sitting there, and you're trying to work through this challenge, you know, and the the enemy comes to you, and he says, you know, the Bible says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What's your problem? You know, they'll they'll mount up like wings with eagles. They'll run and not be weary, walk and not be weary, run and not faint. You look like you're falling on your face all the time. I am falling on my face. God's abandoned me. Right? He knows the Bible. He knew it well enough. He quoted it to the Son of God for crying out loud. He knows it and he's not afraid to use it. But he always uses it incorrectly. I love Jesus when he quotes the scripture to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, You only quoted half the verse. It's also written da 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 da. Ka-choo. So here's an important question to ask yourself How do I tell the difference between God convicting me? by Scripture, and the enemy condemning me by misusing Scripture. How do you tell the difference? Here's how you tell the difference. When God convicts us, He leaves us with a promise. Come to me. Confess your sins so I can wash you clean. Always. The Lord never comes to us and says, you blew it, here's where you blew it, and we're done. Never. Never. Because His Word tells us, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't say if we confess our sins, he's going to think about it for a few weeks. Doesn't say that. So when God convicts us, he leaves us with a promise. Let me forgive you. Let me restore you. I'm not done with you. Always. Always. When the enemy condemns us, he leaves us hopeless. Stay away from the Lord. There's no forgiveness left for you. You're ruined now. You've got to fix things before you come to the Lord. And if you don't fix things, it's over. Well, it doesn't get more over than, God sent me to your land to invade it and to destroy it. Now, these half-truths mixed with flat-out lies could have been very effective in discouraging the people who were listening. And so Hezekiah's delegation, they see what's going on, and they try to change the conversation to one that's more appropriate for a formal negotiation, verse 26. It says, Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah, unto Rebshekah, speak, I pray you, to your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. Do not talk with us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. This is not an open forum. We're here to have a negotiation. They understood Revcheka's strategy. They weren't ignorant of their enemy's tools. And here's an important truth we need to understand. Neither are we. At least we're not supposed to be. Like the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 10 and 11, that we are not ignorant of the enemy's uh, tricks, tools, how he works, his plans. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. Let's, let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 2. Give you a little bit of context. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you can read about it, I think, in chapter 5, maybe 6. But Paul addressed a situation that was going on in Corinth that they were not handling correctly. There was a man there who was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was kind of celebrating the idea that, hey, we're, isn't this cool that we're forgiven and we're free in Christ and, you know, and, 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 you know, and whatnot. And, and Paul says, this is not something to celebrate. Uh, this is something that's shameful. And if he doesn't repent, you need to put him out of the church. Well, they did. But then that guy did repent, he totally repented. And so in chapter two of Second Corinthians, he addresses that they haven't welcomed him back to the church after he repents. And so he says in verse 10, he says, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. You guys need to forgive this guy. I've forgiven this guy because Jesus has forgiven this guy. If we're doing it, it's because Jesus is the one who first did it. That's, by the way, a really cool thought when you're struggling with somebody that the Lord's telling you need to forgive them, is to think to yourself, Jesus has already forgiven them. Really good way to help you to go, well, then I need to, too. So, he says, forgive him. And he explains why now. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul says, Forgive him. Bring him back, not as a second-class Christian, but embrace him fully again. And Paul's reason is so Satan doesn't do more damage to the church. He'd been doing damage because they hadn't dealt with this guy's sin. They had tolerated it and let him continue on in this and even celebrated it. Well, now they were handling things the right way, but they need to keep handling things the right way. And when he repents, you need to bring him back in. Condemnation has always been one of the enemy's most powerful tools. It's one of His go-tos. And knowing that, we must stand on God's promises when condemnation comes. We must remember that His love is an everlasting love, and that if we confess our sins, He promises to be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not just some, but all in righteousness. I think one of the hardest things for a Christian to believe is that they're truly forgiven. I I really do. I I think if you can come to grip with that, that you can accept that and believe that God means what He says in regards to that, I think you eliminate half your problems. Because <laughs> I think that's a big struggle. I think the idea that God declares us righteous and forever is, is something we tend to doubt. Like maybe God's hedging His bets somewhere, that He might be asking for a refund at some point. Like you might look at Michael, you know, or David or somebody and be like, can we, can we count our sins against Him again? Because... I know you died for him, Jesus, but man, do we really want this guy here? God's not like that, but we tend to think He is. But we must stand on His promise that He will not give me what I deserve when I come to His throne of grace. Amen? It says, let us come boldly before His throne of grace. Why? that we can get what we deserve? No, that we can find mercy to help in our time of need. Mercy is the exact opposite. It's not what we deserve. Well, Rabshakeh, even though he's been called out, he refuses to talk to them in the Syrian language. He says, I'm not here to negotiate with a delegation. I'm not even really here to speak with King Hezekiah. I'm here for the people. My words are for their benefit. Look at verse 27. But Rabshakeh said unto them, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? No. Has he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own... Pardon my language. King James says, piss with you. Now, the reason he brings up a horrible, you know, visual concept, imagination, is because that was a common resort when a siege became really bad and food and water were no longer available. You had to eat and drink what... You could find. And so he says, no, 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 no. I'm not, you think I'm here to talk with you? I'm not here to talk with you. I'm, I'm here to talk to the regular people who are going to suffer because of the, of the foolish decisions that men like you and your king have made. I'm here to make them an offer. Verse 28, then Reb Sheka stood and he cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and he spoke, saying, hear the word of the king, the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Syria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat you every man of his own vine, every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that you may live and not die. And do not hearken unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Ooh. Now he gets to it. Don't trust your king, and especially don't trust your king when he says to trust the Lord. He says, here's my offer. Make an agreement with me by a present. That phrase, agreement by a present, is all one word. It means, it basically describes a covenant based on surrender. And the only reason you're making a covenant based on your surrender is because the alternative is annihilation. He says, no, I'm not here to negotiate. I'm here to accept terms of surrender. Accept your surrender. We aren't even on The same ground to negotiate. You are going to lose something here, so why not lose the least amount possible? And his terms are really simple. He says, Come out of the city. Stop manning the walls. Stop defending the city. Just come out of the city. Come out of the city. Leave the city. Leave your king. Surrender yourself to me. And here's what will happen. Instead of starvation, you can go back to normal life. Go back to your homes. Go back to your fields. Go back to your, your cisterns, your wells. Drink water. Live life temporarily. And then eventually, we will enact the same deportation policy we enacted in the north. You'll be taken to places that are just like your homeland, a place where you can live in prosperity, because if you stay in that city, you're already dead. And then he adds one more dig against Hezekiah's call to trust in the Lord. Don't listen to him. Now, if we entertain the enemy's accusations he will eventually forward that to temptations. If we keep listening to his accusations, he'll eventually change the tune of his words to temptations. And he'll begin to say things like, life without the Lord isn't that bad. You can find everything God promises in life elsewhere. So why keep fighting? Why take the hard path? Why not give in like everyone else? Maybe You've been hearing similar whispers lately. Don't listen to the words of God's servants. That way is pain leads to loss, you will miss out. Your life will be miserable. Instead, do what you know will cause you to lose the least. Do what you know you need to do. That is always the ultimate temptation. You know, when the enemy came to Eve, it mentions that after he said what he said, she looked at that tree. And it's kind of comical what she says, but we do the same thing, so it, I shouldn't laugh at her. It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, how did she know that? She'd never eaten anything from it, and that it was pleasing to the eyes. I mean, I've, I've looked at food sometimes, been like, whoa, that looks nice. But that's not usually like the overriding factor Tomatoes look great, but I'm not going to grab one and just munch into it. If you do, that's okay. And then here's the really funny one. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. I have never looked at a piece of food and thought, I'm going to be smarter after I eat this. Uh-huh. Never. Never in my entire life. But it's funny how we act sometimes when temptation hits us. I'll never be loved like I'm supposed to. My husband and my wife, they'll never love me like I'm supposed to. But this coworker treats me nice. I mean, if I don't give in to these feelings I'm having towards this coworker who's not my spouse, I'm going to miss out and I'm going to be stuck here forever. That's not what Eve said, is silly. That's a little bit more real for most of us. Maybe not that particular temptation, but whatever it might be. Sometimes it's simple things. You know, you have things you need to do, like read your Bible or whatever, and, and, and you're just like, yeah, but the, you know, the game's on, and, and if I read it now, I'll miss the game. And, and, and then you put it off, you don't read it, and of course then you don't read it at all that day. Sometimes you get to a place where you go, I'm done reading it, it's not working. I'm just going to watch the game. Why wait? I miss I miss things every time because I go do this. I go to church, or I you know I go out and serve the Lord, or whatever it is, and whatever it doesn't work, and I'm done. It takes. It has different forms. It takes, but it's all the same thing. If I don't do this, I'm going to miss out. If I don't do this, I'm going to lose more. I need to do this to take care of myself. That is the ultimate lie that the enemy trying to get us to buy into. And it's why all of Proverbs urges us to fear the Lord, to be in awe of the Lord, to trust Him and not lean our own, our own understanding. Because the truth is, I can't possibly know what is best for me with my limited knowledge. I just can't. How could I truly know what I need when I didn't even create myself? One of the funniest parts is a new parent, Bev, she had three major surgeries when when we first got married, and she was pregnant for all three, well, two of them. And then she had, we had our first child. So like a couple months into our first child, I'm at home while she's, you know, having surgery in the hospital. I'm home trying to sleep with the little guy because they didn't let me sleep at the hospital because of the nature of the surgery. And and, uh, I'm a new dad. I don't know what to do. Why is he crying? He's not telling me. He's like three months old or two months old or whatever. So I figure, well, every time I put this bottle in his mouth, he shuts up. Three hours later, I'm doing this, and all of a sudden I hear him go, and then I hold him up, and then he just turned into a fire hydrant. My mom says, how much did you give him? I said, as much as I had. Seemed to be happy about it. sorry, son. <laughs> I didn't sleep that first night, you know, and worried about my bride and had no clue how to take care of a kid. I don't, didn't know what he needed. I didn't make him. Over the years, you learn some things, but there are still moments when we've looked at our kids when they couldn't talk, like, what do you want, you know? I don't know. I don't know what I need. At least not what the best thing I need. No matter how intelligent I am, what I know will always be limited unless I include God's all-knowing wisdom. Well, Rabshakeh seeks to seal the deal of the temptation by appealing to logic, verse 33. He says, has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where were the gods of Hamath? Of, or of Arfad, or where are the gods of Sevarpham, or Hena, or Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? We have conquered so many nations prior to invading you, and the rest of this region was already under our control. All these great cities had their own deities, but none of those gods answered any of their people's prayers. None of them had stopped my king. He says, who are they, referring to your little tiny cities in Judah? Who are they that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, the logic is, of course, flawed, because he's presuming that a deity's strength is somehow based on the size or grandeur of the city the deity is in their idols located in. As if you know, how many worshipers he has makes him stronger. But a God that needs worshipers to make him stronger doesn't like, sounds like something that's worthy of my worship, at least not to me. But that's how they fought back then. I think it's interesting, many arguments that are called logic over the course of history, we kind of look back and chuckle at. I wonder who will chuckle at us if the future, you know, is long. It's not that logic is bad, but the problem is we often limit logic to our own understanding or our own enlightenment, and that approach can never result in truth because it doesn't have all the information necessary to arrive at the correct conclusion. Logic that ignores the input God gives us through revelation is only masquerading as logic when it's actually just leaning on my own understanding, and that is bad. Well, Rav Shekha has made his case. How do the people respond? Verse 36, but the people held their peace… Didn't answer him a word. For Hezekiah had anticipated this. The king had commanded them, saying, don't answer him. So then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorded to Hezekiah, and they, tore, they had torn their clothes. So they came to him with their clothes already torn, and they told him the words of Rabshakeh. The people remained loyal to Hezekiah, who told them, trust in the Lord. Isn't that cool? They trusted him, trusted the Lord. But that doesn't mean the situation wasn't dire because the message was clear. Surrender or be wiped out. There will be no negotiation. And so when these guys come back and their clothes are ripped, that's a sign of mourning. They did this because the threat was serious and because the Lord also had been slandered, blasphemed. But that's, that's what the enemy does. You see, that's what he did to Eve. In fact, the New Testament word for devil just means slanderer. That's what he does. He's a blasphemer. And that's one of the ways that you can recognize the accuser's voice. He will always say something like this God isn't who he claims to be, or you can't trust what God says. He always comes off across like that. He slanders the Lord. Which is why Proverbs three I know we come to this verse quite frequently when we do Bible studies. But Proverbs three, five, five and six is what we normally read, but I'm gonna close by reading Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths or make them smooth or straight. But there's more. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to your navel, to your body, and marrow or strength a refreshment to your bones. How do we deal with the accuser? That's how you deal with the accuser. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. But instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Depart from evil. Do the right things. Trust what he says. Trust his character. Trust his promises, his covenants. Covenants and character. Rest there. And the Bible gives us this promise. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, you said over and over again to the enemy when he came to you with temptation, you said, It is written. And so, Lord, when the accuser comes to us, you give us a blueprint. We're not ignorant of his devices. So, Lord, we need to understand who we are in you, we need to receive what you say about us. Ultimately, we need to trust in you and not lean on our own understanding. We need to acknowledge you. We need to depart from evil. So, Lord, tonight, maybe, maybe there might be some here who you kind of put in your finger and say, hey, you need to depart from evil here, or hey, you need to acknowledge me here, or hey, you need to stop leaning on your own understanding, stop being wise in your own eyes, you need to trust in me completely in this area. Lord, you know where we're all at individually, so you meet that need. But as there are some who are saying, Lord, I am going to acknowledge you or trust you or depart from evil or whatever it might be. Or as they're doing that, will you fill them with your Holy Spirit that they might have the strength and the ability to live it out and to honor their commitment. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.